Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 22. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 30. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find uh, these verses on page 882. Luke chapter 22, 21 through 30, continuing Luke's account of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. Let us give our careful attention, for this is the very word of God. Jesus said, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table and my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do come before you this morning asking for your grace, asking that according to your promise, you would attend to the preaching of your word this morning, that you would cause it to bring forth a harvest, that you would cause it to to renew our minds and our hearts, and to equip us for those good works which you have prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Father God, this is what we ask, and we ask it boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. One of you is going to betray me. That is, in effect, what Jesus says in verse 21. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. In other words, one of you seated at this table, one of you sharing this meal with me, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to hand me over to the authorities to be condemned and executed. It's a shocking statement, almost unthinkable. Just imagine that you are gathered with your closest friends and and family. Maybe you're all together for a Memorial Day gathering as I was with my family not too long ago. And now imagine that your father or, or some other prominent figure says to the group, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to sell me out. One of you is going to bring great harm to me so that you might have some advantage. It would be be shocking to hear such a thing. How how do you think that you would respond? 
I suspect that you would do more than calmly deny the accusation. You would, you would vehemently protest the charge. Why would you say such a thing, you would ask? Don't you know me? Don't you know that I would never do something like that? And I think that having defended yourself, you, you would then go on probably to, to wonder who it is that your father could possibly be talking about. You know he's not talking about you. You know you would never do such a thing, so it must be one of them. Who could it possibly be? What does he know? It seems to be the exact pattern followed by the disciples. Luke tells us simply that they began to question one another, which of them it could be that was going to do this. But, but Matthew tells us that first they all professed their innocence. He writes, and they were very sorrowful, that is, when they heard Jesus say this, and they began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Now to our modern ears, that, that sounds like an honest question. It sounds like they're actually asking Jesus, is it, is it me? Am I the one who's going to do this? But, but much more likely, it's a Semitic way of, of denying the accusation. One commentator calls it a rhetorical denial. They are, in effect, saying... Surely you don't think it's me. Surely you must be talking about one of the others because I would never do that. And can you imagine what protests led to? As, as they each hear the other saying, well, it can't be me, it must be one of them. They begin to, to say to one another, hey, who do you think you are? You think I might betray him, but, but you're too good to do such a thing? Do you really think you're that much better than me? No way. If, if one of us is going to betray him, it's going to be you, not me. And with that, the discussion quickly devolves into an argument about which one of them is to be regarded as the greatest. Which one of them is, is the greatest in the kingdom? That's really the way that this whole conversation goes. That's the way that this, this whole story unfolds. And there are three things that I want us to see in this part of the meal this morning. And the first thing I want us to see is our weakness. Or maybe I could say it this way. What I want us to see is the importance of seeing our weakness. Because we see this in the, fa in the failure of the disciples to see theirs. When Jesus warns the disciples that one of them is a traitor, when, when Jesus warns them that one of them is going to betray him, they end up arguing about which one of them is the greatest. That is hard to comprehend. But why? Why does this become the topic of conversation? Why do they immediately begin to, to argue about which one of them is the greatest? They, they go there because none of them can believe that he is possibly the one that Jesus is talking about. Just think about that for a moment. When Jesus warns them that one of them is going to betray him, they all immediately assume that it must be one of the others. It must be one of them, because it can't possibly be me. That's telling, isn't it? It's telling that they so quickly assume Jesus must be talking about someone else. I think it's safe to assume that's not the response that Jesus was looking for. Now, Jesus knows his disciples. Jesus is the omniscient son of God. Jesus probably knew how they were going to respond. But, but at another level, that's not the response that Jesus was looking for. 
What do you think would have been the proper response? How should the disciples have responded to Jesus' warning? What do you think Jesus was getting at? What do you think he was trying to accomplish? Why do you think that Jesus told the whole group that one of them was going to betray him without specifying which one he was talking about? Why why Jesus do that? We, we know from the other Gospels that, that Jesus knows it's Judas. Why then does he give such a vague warning? Well, one reason that Jesus doesn't expose Judas as the traitor at this moment is that he doesn't want the disciples to, to try to step in and stop him from doing what he is about to do. Jesus even tells Judas to, to do what he is going to do Quickly, remember that everything is unfolding according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Son of Man is going as it has been determined. So that's one reason that Jesus doesn't expose Judas at this point. But I think there's more going on than just this pragmatic consideration. I believe Jesus gives his disciples this, this general warning. Rather than naming Judas specifically, because he wants them to examine themselves. He, he wants them to, to think about their own hearts. He wants them to see themselves accurately. And that means seeing themselves as potential traitors. We know from the rest of the story that despite their protests to the contrary, despite their promises to go with Jesus to prison and even to death, in less than 24 hours, they are all going to abandon him. Peter, when pressed by a servant girl, will deny even knowing him, even calling down curses upon his own head. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows this about his disciples. Jesus knows their weakness. And he wants them to see it. But why? Why would Jesus want them to see themselves as weak? Why would he, why do he want them to, to see themselves as potential traitors? In today's culture, that just doesn't make any sense. Mentors and, and life coaches and other self-help gurus, they're, they're always trying to get their clients to do what? They're, they're trying to get their clients to see their strengths. They're, they're trying to get their clients to, to see their potential, to, to raise their, their self-esteem. This is the key to success, according to those who know in the world. People have to, to see their potential. They have to, to see what they're, they're capable. They have to believe in themselves. Why then would Jesus want his disciples to, to see their weakness so clearly? Well, it seems to me that Jesus wants his disciples to see their weakness so that they will ask for the strength that they need. So they will ask for the strength that they need to walk the path that has been marked out for them. Because if the disciples trust in their own strength, if, if the disciples undertake the work that has been set before them on their own, they will fail. The simple truth is they are not sufficient to the calling with which they have been called. And therefore, if they are going to do the work that they have been given, if they are going to fulfill their role as apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then they must humbly call upon the name of the Lord for empowering grace. Because it is only in His strength, it is only as His immeasurable power works in them, that they will be able to do what they have been given to do. Of course, the disciples don't do this, at least not yet. They, they simply dismiss Jesus' warning out of hand. They simply assume that, that Jesus must be talking about someone else. And because they fail to see their weakness, within the next 24 hours, each of them will fall flat on their face. Each of them will fail. There's a lesson there for us this morning. I wonder how often we do the same things when we encounter the warnings of Scripture? How often do we assume that they can't apply to us? How often do we assume that, that that particular verse must be talking about someone else? How often do we assume that someone else needs to hear that particular warning? I think we need to learn from the disciples' mistakes. We, we need to, to learn from them to see our weakness sooner rather than later. Let us learn not to, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but instead to humbly, even as we have done this morning, to, to humbly come before God and ask that He would strengthen us. That He would strengthen us, as Paul says in the Colossians, with, with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And we come before Him asking Him for the strength that we need to live the lives that have been marked out for us. Because if you seek to live this life on your own, you will fail. You are not sufficient to walk as becomes a follower of Christ. You are not sufficient to, to bring forth the fruits of, of righteousness. You are not sufficient to love your neighbor as your you cannot do these things in your own strength. I do not say that to discourage you. I do not say that to break your spirit. I say that to say, call upon the name of the Lord, for He is the one who has immeasurable power. And do you not know that all the immeasurable power of God is now at work in those who believe, and those who call upon His name? Therefore, let us learn from the disciples' mistake to humble ourselves and to seek the power of God for the lives we have been called to live. But of course, we must not only recognize our need for God's empowering grace, we must also understand the purpose of His empowering grace. What is this life that we've been called to live? What is the work that we've been given to do? This is the second thing I want us to see in this passage, and we see it in Jesus' teaching on the nature of true greatness. There is, I think, in, in every human heart a desire to do something great. There's a desire to, to do something important, something that matters. It's a, it's a desire that first shows itself in the, the littlest of children who cry out to their parents, Hey, look at me. Watch me. See what I can do. If you are a parent, you have heard your children utter those phrases, and I want you to recognize that, that those are the first cries of the human heart to have our work affirmed as noteworthy. To have what we do regarded as important, as, as significant, as, as valuable. 
seeing and little children, but you need to know that that desire does not dissipate with age. If anything, it, it only intensifies. I remember feeling it intensely when I was in high school and in college trying to figure out what I was going to, to do with my life. We've been honoring our graduates recently and they are looking to the future. They are wondering what are they going to do with their lives. And I can remember being in their shoes and I can remember not wanting to waste my life. I can remember wanting to, to use my life for something that mattered. I can remember wanting to do something great. And I'm sure that there are many here this morning in high school and in, and in college who, who have that same burning desire. They, they want their lives to matter. So what should they do? But as I said, the, the desire doesn't dissipate with age. And if anything, I think I've felt that desire even more intensely since turning 40. There's something about turning 40 that, that causes a person to reflect. I used to say when I wasn't 40 that, oh, it's just a number. But then when it actually happened, I began to realize, no, it's more than a number. It, it, it causes you to think. It causes you to take stock. It causes you to reflect on what you have accomplished and, maybe more importantly, what you have not accomplished. And that desire to be great wells up in your heart. Again, I suspect that there are more than a few here this morning in the 40-plus crowd who know what I'm talking about. And while I'm not there yet, I've had enough conversations with people nearing retirement age to know that they still feel the desire to. You want your life to count. Whatever you have failed to accomplish to this point, you, you want to, to accomplish something of significance in the years that you have left. You want to do something Important. I've heard my dad say more often than I can count, I would rather burn up serving the Lord than rust out lounging on the beach. This past week was the anniversary of Calvin's death. I believe he was 54, 55 years old when he died. And, and near the end of his life, he said something similar. His friends were, were coming to him. They were imploring him to, to slow down because his health was, was failing, but he refused. And he said he would not waste in idleness the days that the Lord had given him. He wanted to do something that mattered. And so it would seem we, we feel this desire from our earliest days all the way until our last days. We, we have a desire to be great, a desire to matter, to be valuable, to be significant, to do something noteworthy. It seems to be an inherent part of our, our God-given nature. And the first thing I want you to see is, is this, that this desire for greatness, this, this desire to do things that are great, to do things that, that matter, this desire is not sinful. On the contrary, it is part of your being made in the image of God. The sluggard who is content to waste his life in idleness is not more righteous than the man who desires to be great. What is wrong with our desire for greatness is not the desire itself, but the nature of the, of the greatness that we see. We see this in, in Jesus teaching to his disciples. The disciples are arguing about which of them is to be regarded as the greatest. And, and Jesus says to them this, 
He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying to his disciples, He's listen, your desire for greatness is wrong. Not because the desire itself is wrong, but because the operating definition of greatness that, that you are pursuing is from the world rather than from God. They have allowed the, the world to define for them the greatness that they are seeking. And what is the nature of that greatness? What is the world's definition of, of greatness? The first thing I want you to see about it is, is that Jesus uses the word benefactor. A benefactor is one who does good for another. When I went to seminary, I received a scholarship from the McClellan Foundation. Now, don't be too impressed. It was a scholarship for anybody in Chattanooga who was going to seminary. But still, it was a scholarship, and they were my benefactor. They did me good. And Jesus is saying that the world recognizes that, that in order to be great... You must use your power to benefit others. There's a, there's a connection, a relationship between greatness and, and doing good for others. The world sees that. And it's important for us to, to recognize that because I think it's far too easy for us as Christians to, to sort of erect a straw man of the world's wisdom. And when we do that, we actually miss what's wrong with it. The world recognizes that there is a, a relationship between doing good and being great. There are, of course, notable exceptions, but, but by and large, the, the world sees this connection. It's portrayed in every superhero movie that's ever been made. My, my family watched a, a Superman movie last night. And in that Superman movie, it's very clear that Superman is better than his enemy. I can't remember, from the same planet. And, and it's clear that, that, um, <laughs> that Superman is better. Why? Because ser Superman serves the good of humanity. While the other uses his power to destroy. The world gets that. We, we would call it a common grace insight. We would, we would call it an insight into the way that God has, has created the, the world, the way that the world works, because it is God's world. We are to use our, our resources to bless others. You don't have to be a, a Christian to recognize that. But think about what it means to be called a benefactor. The benefactor is the source of the good. You are great because you are doing something good for another. I didn't consider the, the mailman who delivered the check for my scholarship to be my benefactor. Rather, I understood that it was the foundation that was blessing me. The foundation is the one who, who was the ultimate source of the good. And so from the world's perspective, being great means first being seen as the source, as the, the source of the blessing, as the source of the good. And this is tied then to lordship. That's the second word that Jesus uses. He says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Think about what that means. Lordship is, is to possess a power and authority. It's the, the right to call the shots, the ability to do what you decide. And so from the world's perspective, greatness is having the power and authority to do good as you see fit to those who you deem worthy. This is what it means to be great. But when we think about greatness this way, what are we doing? 
We are defining greatness ultimately in a way that only God can fulfill. Only God has the power and the authority to call the shots. Only God is truly Lord. As, as His creatures, we must submit to His will. We must submit to, to His commands. And, and furthermore, we are never the source of the good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. As, as creatures, we are never the benefactors. We may be given the, the privilege of delivering the check, but we never sign it. And therefore, when the world pursues this kind of, of greatness, what are they trying to do? They are trying to be God to their neighbor. They are trying to put themselves on, on God's throne. That's the greatness that they pursue. That's the greatness that they envision. It's a greatness that is not open to creatures. As creatures, we must seek another kind of greatness. As creatures, we must seek a, a greatness that is appropriate to our created being. This is what Jesus describes beginning in verse 26. He says, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves for a, for a human being, for, for one who is created. True greatness is not found in lordship, for that belongs to God alone, but rather true greatness. The greatness for which we were created is found in being a servant of the true king. Let's think about what that means in, in practical terms. Let's, let's think about what that means in, in the way that we actually dream about life. I'm going to speak from my perspective. I'm a pastor, but, but I imagine that any of you can fill in the details from your own perspective. So think with me for just a moment about what it would mean to be great. I have a desire to do something that matters. I have a desire to, to invest my life in, in work that counts. But when I'm thinking from a worldly perspective, that comes across as wanting to be the benefactor. I imagine myself to be a great preacher whom people flock to hear. I, I imagine my church growing by the sheer power of my teaching. I imagine people buying my books and inviting me to speak at their conferences. I, I imagine people thanking me for saving their marriages or for giving them some profound new perspective on their work. I imagine being a benefactor. It's the, the desire for, for greatness wound up in a worldly definition. And in short, I imagine my life unfolding according to my script. According to the script that I have, have written in my mind, I imagine myself having the power and authority to, to cause my will to be done. As I said, I'm sure you could write your own description from your own perspective, but what I want you to hear this morning is that Jesus calls us to something different. Jesus is, is calling me not to be a benefactor, but to be a servant. Jesus is calling me to put my ambitions to death and devote myself to, to doing the work He has given me to do. To pastoring this church in, in this town. To, to going to conferences instead of speaking at them. To reading books instead of writing them. To walking with people through troubles and trials that I cannot fix. And simply being with them in the midst as they call upon the only one who can truly be their refuge. You see the difference? You, you see 
How, when you imagine greatness from a worldly perspective, it puts you on the throne of God. And God says, no, I'm calling you to something different. I'm calling you not to, to stand in my place, but I'm calling you to be my servant. So that's the question that's before us this morning. Are we willing to be servants or do we demand to be benefactors? Do, do we, are we willing to do what we're given to do or do we demand the power and the authority to call the shots? I've heard well-intentioned teachers challenging pastors and, and others to attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to failure unless God be in it. You heard that? I've heard it more times than I can count. But I wonder... I wonder if that's something like throwing yourself off the temple roof to see if God will save you. I wonder if it's a form of putting God to the test. I wonder if God's challenge through His Son Jesus would be radically different. I wonder if Jesus would call us to do something so small that no one will notice. To do the work that He's actually given us to do instead of seeking something that will bring us prestige and praise. You see, greatness is not found in being God. It's not found in taking God's throne for ourselves. But rather for us as human beings, true greatness is found in serving the King, not in being the King. True greatness is found in doing whatever He gives us to do today because He has given us it to do. You have a job. It may not be your dream job. It may not be the job you aspire to, but you have been given work to do. Do it today as unto the Lord. If you're married, you, you have a spouse. Love them well. If God has given you children, raise them up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. Disciplining them today for the thousandth time and standing with them patiently as you seek to bring them towards maturity in Christ. You have friends. Strengthen and encourage them by speaking the truth to them in love. You have neighbors. Get to know them. Have them sit at your table and develop relationships with them that you might share your life and even the gospel with them. You have good works to do. Do the good works that He has given you to do today. And believe it is enough. Believe it is enough to serve Him well. Do not measure greatness by the prestige or the, the position to which he has called you. But rather measure greatness by the glory of the one who has called you into his service. This past week I've been listening to the soundtrack of Hamilton, a Broadway musical about the life of, of Alexander Hamilton. And in the musical... Hamilton is depicted as exceedingly frustrated with George Washington because Washington has called him to be his secretary rather than giving him command of an army. You see, Hamilton wants to make a name for himself. He wants to be a general because he knows that if he succeeds on the battlefield, then he will be able to overcome all the deficiencies of his upbringing. He will have a name for himself. He is not content to simply do the work that he has been given to do. He is not content to be a servant. He does not define greatness as doing well the work that his master has given him to do. He wants to be the benefactor. I see myself in Hamilton. I, 
I suspect that many of you do too. May God give us the grace to change our perspective. May God give us the grace, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but may he give us the grace to see greatness as he sees it. Of course, the question is, how does he do that? How does does he change our perspective? How does he give us new eyes? I, I don't have time to unpack it fully this morning, but just look at that last paragraph. Or actually, look at the last sentence of the first paragraph. What does Jesus say? I am among you as one who serves. And because I am among you as one who serves, therefore, he says, I assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There's There's a lot there. We can argue about the details, but this is what I want you to see. Jesus came as one who serves. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He has ransomed us. He has redeemed us. He has set us free. And because he has ransomed us, because he has redeemed us, we now have a living hope of one day having an inheritance in the kingdom, of one day sitting at the the king's table, of one day even having a work to do Ruling that kingdom for the glory of his name. You see, we can be servants of the king without fear, without reservation, because the truth of the matter is being a servant of the king is far greater than being Lord in our own little fiefdom. He has redeemed us for that for which we were created. He has redeemed us to be servants of the Lord God Almighty. He has redeemed us to be His arch, His his arch regents in this world, on His behalf. Be a servant of the King. There is no greater calling. Do what He gives you to do, trusting that because it is Him who has given you to do it, there is no greater work that you can give your life to at the moment. That's the hope that we have. That's how how he changes our perspective. He says, listen, listen. You want to be great. To be great, you must lose your life. You want life abundant. To get it, you must die. Die to your selfish ambitions. Die to your own kingdom. Die to your own authority. Die to being the benefactor. Let me bless you. Because if I bless you, then you can be a blessing all the families of the earth. Let my power flow through you that others might be blessed by you and that others might see me for who I am. That's the calling that we have in Christ. Let us learn to see our weakness, to call upon his name that we might serve him well and in serving him well know the true greatness for which we were created. Because such a calling is ours in Christ, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. And we ask that you would now, Father, open our eyes to see. Open our eyes to to know and to understand the nature of true greatness. Father, set us free from our selfish ambitions. Set us free from our, our foolish desire to be God. 
Help us to know and understand, Father, that it is far greater to be a servant in your kingdom than to be a prince elsewhere. May these truths, Father, rule in our hearts and bring forth fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.